Hi, I'm Darren Peppard. Welcome to the Leaning into Leadership podcast, the podcast dedicated to today's hardworking leader. Join me every Sunday for leadership insight, inspiration, and a little pep talk to keep you rolling down your road to awesome. Hey, my friends, welcome into episode number 84 of the Leaning Into Leadership podcast. My guest on the show today is Drew Perkins. Now, you might know Drew as the Director of Professional Development for Teach Thought. You might also know Drew as the host of the Teach Thought podcast. It's possible you know Drew as someone who spent 15 years as a teacher and as a leader in multiple states, including Michigan, California, Texas, and most recently, Kentucky. But you might also know Drew as someone who was formerly with the Buck Institute for Education or with the Collaborative for Teaching and Learning. But you certainly should know Drew as someone who has contributed to the development of several project-based learning models, including the Teach Thought PBL model. I know Drew as someone who actually delivered professional development for my district. Drew and I sat down and had an awesome conversation recently talking about not just project-based learning, not just teaching and learning, but about education in general. It's a fantastic conversation, and I can't wait for you to listen to it. And you're going to grab it right on the other side of this message. Hey, leaders. You know, teachers and administrators don't always see eye to eye. So it might surprise you that over 86% of teachers and administrators agree that we need more full-time classroom teachers leading our professional development. That's where my friends at Peer Driven PD come in. Peer Driven PD finds some of the best teachers in the country and documents their instructional strategies that work in real classrooms every day. And then they make the content available to schools everywhere. It's kind of like a masterclass, but for teachers. Imagine that your teachers are learning from other amazing teachers who, just like them, are gifted and passionate about driving student achievement. And if you've got your own superstar teachers who deserve some exposure, Peer Driven PD will visit your campus and film your own teachers doing what they do best and share it on the platform for their colleagues and everyone else to see. What a huge morale boost that can be for a district. And just so you know, Mike Alpert, who's the company's founder, has been a guest on this very podcast. Check out episode 49. Mike's a former teacher and administrator who has worked with schools from coast to coast. He really understands the need for engaging PD that teachers will appreciate. Look, I've seen this work firsthand. It's unique. It's interesting. And it's just what you need if your teachers want more out of their professional development. Visit PeerDrivenPD.com to request a quote. Tell them the Leaning Into Leadership podcast sent you, and they'll give you a free trial access so you can check out all of their content and decide for yourself. As well, they'll give you an additional 10% off your first year's subscription simply for mentioning the Leaning Into Leadership podcast. Go to PeerDrivenPD.com today. Again, that's PeerDrivenPD.com. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today better tomorrow and a podcast to get you there explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com now let's get on to the episode all right welcome into the leaning into leadership podcast drew perkins good to see you today my friend how are you doing well thanks as i uh, often say i can't complain it doesn't matter much if i do but i could i could list some complaints if you really want (laughs) 
<laughs> right on. Well, maybe we can dive into a few of those in, in a few minutes. You never know what uh, what we can do to solve problems here. Uh, really quick, Drew. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you say we always say things like, you know, why complain? Nobody's listening. Well, yeah, they're listening right now. So, you know, the opportunity is, is actually there for you. There you go. So just really quick, Drew, uh, for, for my audience, just let them know a little bit about who you are, where you're coming from, that type of thing. Yeah, so uh, I'm currently the director of Teach Thought Professional Development and have been at that helm since uh, 2016 and was previously a teacher. I was a teacher for 15 years and tried hard not to become a teacher because my mom and, and grandmother were both teachers and I often sort of joke about over here to my right the uh, teaching certificate and um and a contract with my grandmother and, and some of the stipulations like changing could be, she could be fired for changing name and changing condition, which would be marriage and pregnancy, which I always joke is terrible HR policy. And she made $960 for the year in 1933, 34 in Erie, Pennsylvania. But uh, anyways, I tried not to become a teacher, but actually was telling the story to my daughters yesterday as we were talking about careers and things. And I was sort of drawn back to it and, uh, and uh, fell in, fell back into it in some ways and started off with uh, jobs in emotional behavior disorder, special education before transitioning into the regular ed classroom, middle and high school social studies, where I taught again, most of that time was, it was in the regular ed, ed, ed classroom first three or four years in special ed and taught all kinds of things and coached basketball and golf and all of that kind of thing. And uh, I started doing lots of project-based learning work and, and connected with what, what used to be called Buck Institute for Education. It's now PVL Works. And they invited me to become a national faculty member, which is where I started doing professional development and sort of blossomed from there into uh, some of my own work. And then, like I said, in 2016, we uh, got the ball rolling on teach that professional development and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that was actually how you and I connected was mm -hmm. your work with teach thought. Uh, when I was a superintendent in uh, Grand County, Colorado, as we were transitioning um, as a whole district into really wanting to be immersive with project based learning, we actually contracted with teach thought and mm -hmm. brought you out to Colorado and you spent some time with us. Mm -hmm. I think you came in August um, for, for a handful of days. And I know we had some wonderful training and, and some really great experiences working with you. Um, I, you know, it, it makes me wonder a little bit, you know, when, when you, when you're out and you're, and you're doing some of these things, um, what are, what are like some of your favorite experiences when you are doing, uh, training with with different districts around the country? Yeah, I'm remembering, and actually up over my desk here that uh, folks obviously can't see, but is a picture from Grand, uh, not far from Grand Lake, a hike that I think you turned me on to or somebody in, the, in that workshop turned me on to. And I, I remember coming over the, the crest in this wonderful picture that I'm looking You're up like. at and thinking like, wow, this is amazing. And I took a picture of it and actually turned it into a picture over my desk. But, uh, you know, there's there's lots of things right i mean i certainly miss being in the classroom and the relationships with students and that can be a challenge in professional development because you know like i worked with your teachers and we always advocate and ask them to stay in touch and ask questions and that kind of thing but 
you know, they're busy, we're busy and we lose touch. So having those relationships is something that is something I do miss, but there's lots of, of wonderful things. I get to go to amazing places and, you know, Colorado is one of them. And I do remember walking into, I think when I, at least one of the times I was there, I can't remember if I came to, to your school setting in more than one time. It seems like I did, but I know one time it was bitterly cold in the morning and I was like, wow, this is really cold. Um, but, you know, getting to help teachers and think more about teachers, uh, about their thinking. And as I, as I sort of analyze people's thinking as I'm working with them and try to help them, you know, we, we try to help make, help educators make students thinking visible. And of course we want to model that. And we do a lot of that in our workshops, trying to get their thinking out so we can build upon it or correct it in a way that is consistent with what we're, what we're trying to work with them on. That kind of thing is, is always really interesting and challenging in, in the best ways. Um, you know, doing our podcast, the Teach Thought podcast has been something that, that I have developed. I always say, you know, I often say is like, it's just such, it's a selfish pursuit for me. I get to talk with amazing people and they send me their books and I read them and, and I get to talk with them and, you know, I get a, a call or an email from, uh, you know, would you, would you be willing to make some time for Howard Gardner or John Hattie? I'm like, well, let me see if I can fit that into my schedule. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, right. Yeah. You know, that's been a, a, a real, uh, opportunity and, and, an awesome thing for me to, to have engaged in. Absolutely. So when, when you first left, I, I, w- I want to stand this for just a second and, and then move forward. But when you first left uh, the classroom and, and went to work for, uh, mm. for Buck Institute, um, what was that transition like for you? I mean, I'm sure you were excited to go and, and have mm. this opportunity to support schools all over the place. But, uh, you know, you already talked about the whole not being around kids. I mean, mm. what, what was that initial transition like? Well, there was an overlap. I mean, I was in the classroom still when I started working as a national faculty member for the Buck Institute. So there was a bit of an overlap. Uh, I will say, I remember, I distinctly remember when I left the classroom in 2012, two things, two stories that I'll relate. One, my wife at the time said, do you are you happy to be out of the classroom? And I said, well, I'm happy to be out of that classroom because it was, I was pretty burned out and it wasn't the, the kind of situation that was intellectually and professionally rewarding for me. So there's that. Uh, then the other part, which, you know, anybody who's a teacher and has been a teacher probably will, will recognize and resonate with this is I remember going out in the middle of the day for a run and feeling like, am I going to get in trouble? Like, because of a school day, you know, the school day is so regimented, right? And and people who aren't teachers right. don't seem to, I mean, it's hard for them to understand that, you know, you, you teach for whatever, 50 minutes or whatever your class period is, you've got six minutes for a break and you are, you know, managing kids and you're trying to go to the bathroom and we had 24 minute lunches and, you know, it's like, really, really regimented. Yeah. And there's literally bells to tell you when to go and when you can go, right? So shifting out of that took, uh, I think it took a couple of years for me to, to sort of feel comfortable yeah. with that in a way. Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, there are still times where, um, you know, I'll be drinking my coffee in the morning and, and I haven't gotten started by mm-hmm. 7.30 or 8 o'clock or, or whatever. And it just feels weird. 
And, you know, often, often, in fact, twice this week, I've had to ask my wife, what day of the week is it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just, you know, when, when you're in a classroom, you know, or when you're, you know, a building administrator or whatever, um, it's like days have a feel to them. And when you're not, you know, in, in there every single day, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's a little bit bizarre. It really, yeah. really truly is. So, so I, I want to kind of go, go into, into something you were referring to a little bit there with just, you know, kind of, you know, that, uh, that burnout piece that, that mm-hmm. you said you were feeling when, when you left the classroom. I, I mean, I have some pretty strong feelings around burnout and, and some strong beliefs around that. But um, I, I guess kind of where I want to go with this is just a little bit of teacher mindset right now. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, you felt that burnout when you were migrating out of the classroom. As you're working with teachers around the country right now, I'm sure you're hearing about burnout and seeing some things in mindset. Mm-hmm. What might be something that, especially the the building level leaders that that are a big part of my audience, need to know that maybe teachers tell you, but they won't tell their administrators? Well, that's a that's a that's a good question. You know, I don't know that they necessarily share with me uh, because, again, we're, we're, we haven't developed a deep, deep relationship. They do. Right. I, I mean, depending on where we are. Right. And, and there's there's some obvious culture war issues. And I've talked about this on our podcast that are really exerting some pressure on teachers. Right. Do we can we teach this? Can we say this? Should we say this? Are we being censored? All of those kinds of things. Uh, there are some issues, I think, with um, with staffing and having to cover for for other teachers. And teachers have told me that I've talked with my daughter's former teachers, one of them who's left the classroom because it was just untenable, and others. And you know, I talk with superintendents who are trying to sort of shield their teachers from legislatures who are trying to take local control, for example, those kinds of things. Um, there are some, I think, some discipline issues that I think schools are really struggling with. My daughters are are reporting some of that, although it could be a f- more of a function in their case that they're now in eighth and 10th grade. And, you know, those kinds of discipline issues tend to happen more as they manifest differently and more, more, uh, more visibly in, you know, middle and high school. So those are some of the things that I think are are certainly pressured. And there are teachers, I mean, I was in Waukesha, Wisconsin, uh, I guess it was maybe, I guess it was before COVID, but it was, you know, after George Floyd and some of those kinds of things. And they were, I had a teacher literally tell me, I'm terrified to teach anything about, you know, race and that kind of thing. Um, and I, I certainly understand that. And, and so those, those kinds of pressures, I think are really, really important to note and try to, to, to think about. Uh, and that's some of, some of the things that we've been trying to think about. How can we help with that situation? Um, on another note, you know, they don't say this, I don't think, but when I talk about it, they do, teachers do and educators do, I think, really resonate with the idea or the lack of intellectual nourishment, right? And professional development is what we do. And part of that is, can we intellectually nourish, create situations that are in conversations and activities and exercises and things where teachers are engaging that are intellectually nourishing to them? You know, PLCs can function that way. They can also function as, you know, what do we need to turn in and how long is this going to take? 
And unfortunately, those kinds of of well-meaning kinds of activities and structures, unfortunately, too often turn into the latter and not so much intellectual nourishment. So I think that's a really big piece that that school leaders and really our whole country needs to kind of think about when it comes to education, how we improve it. I think that's that's a perfect segue into where I want to go. Um, you know, at, at this at the time that we're recording this, at least, <coughs> at the time that we're recording this, at least, this is the time when a lot of administrators, district level administrators, are starting to think about their professional development for next year. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that we need to bring to our staff to help them get that intellectual nourishment, but also to continue to shape the vision and the direction that we have for our school or for our district. And you know, again, I mentioned this, you know, towards the top of the show. You know, uh, our first interaction was having you come into my district to work on uh, beginning that the, that journey for us into mm-hmm. project based learning. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about what that what that initial journey can look like, um, and what you try to do to help schools, districts, whatever the case may be, begin that project based learning uh, journey. Yeah, well, we often really engage with teachers most most of the time and while that's important we we advocate for and really think it's important for leadership to think about how do they implement something like this pbl or any sort of major initiative and do it sustainably right nobody would say oh one workshop is great and drive-by pd kind of thing is is all we need right now that doesn't mean that we have to be the provider of all of that that sort of initiative of professional development. But when we work with leaders, we advocate for thinking about how do we, and we engage them in PBL and, and inquiry because that's that's the lens through which we run everything. Is is how do we how can we create a sustainable PBL implementation plan? And what are the things that we need to consider? Right? What is it? How do we launch this, or how do we plan it first? And then how do we launch it? And then what do we want it to look like in year one, two, three, four, five, and that kind of thing. And recognizing that it is a process. We also advocate for really taking a hard look at what are your curriculum, your systems, and your practices, and also your purpose, right? Your mission and vision. And making sure that those things are consistent with where you're trying to go. And some of those things, you know, we say, what are your curriculum pieces? What are your systems that you have in place? What are the practices that you are engaging in, in buildings and in classrooms and, and teachers? And at what, which, in which of those will be friction points towards where we're trying to go? In which of those will be sort of, you know, allowing and, and really sort of greasing that? And so I think those are important pieces in the mission and vision. We actually turn our mission question, our mission statement into a mission question and then say, all right, what do we need to know and, and do in order to answer that question? And then the vision is what do we want it to look like, sound like, feel, feel like, right? What would the evidence of that be? And we say then, what do we need to do? 
right? What are the practices that everybody from superintendent on down to all the stakeholders will engage with and engage in and then consistently critique those things to see, are they getting us where we need to go? And if not, then what should we do differently? Or perhaps where we, where we thought we wanted to go is maybe someplace, something we need to re redefine in, in that mission and vision. We also try to engage them in, through a sort of series of questions, seven questions that were developed and we modified and adapted them from uh, a, a book that I really think was, was wonderful. And I get to talk with him before he passed, but Richard DeFore, who folks will know from PLC and Solution Tree, he wrote a really wonderful book before he passed. And I think partly the candor and the ways in which he talked about education in that book, In Praise of American Educators, is the book. Uh, he knew he was terminally ill from cancer. And so, you know, one who doesn't need to keep the checks coming, right, might talk a little differently about education than somebody who sure. may be a little more right. cautious, right? And, and and not to say that that he wasn't candid before then, but... You know, I do think that 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 book is really, really well written and really thoughtful. And he's writing about PLCs, but we adapted it to these seven questions that he that he recommends. You know, what questions, why questions, how questions, all your stakeholders and especially your teachers are going to say, you know, what does PBL, for example, look like or in his case, PLCs? What happens if we do it? Um, well or don't do it well how do how are we going to be pro, uh, professionally developed and supported and you know all of these kinds of questions and so we really try to get leaders to really wrestle with those because one it'll help them in their planning but it also i think helps with teachers who generally and and i am as guilty as anybody or was as a teacher pretty cynical about professional development because in in m many cases it's not been done really well and it hasn't been sustainable right. it hasn't hasn't you know lasted it's like all right how long is this going to last and what's the next big thing and that kind of that kind of mindset right so when teachers come into a new initiative and have at least the sense that the the leadership has engaged in some thoughtfulness about it and and have a long-term plan and have even we we recommend in that you know like we'll do a leadership pbl workshop that we say we want the, the school leaders but we also want some teacher leaders and if we can get them maybe students perhaps uh, community members, industry members, because we might be partnering with them and bring them into that conversation so that they have one, they have a voice and you're getting their voice, but also, especially with teachers, they're the ones who are gonna, you're going to ask to do this. And they're like, oh, so we're a part of this. OK, this is helpful. Right. So that's a big piece of it. Oh, absolutely. I think. I think there's a lot to be said for ensuring that there's a lot of voice and a lot of opportunity for people to to at least gather some understanding. You mm -hmm. know, uh, so often I, I know I was guilty of it, too, as a teacher um, with professional development of, you know, why are we even doing this? You right, know, and, right. and what am I actually expected to do? And, you know, I, I like that you talked about uh, Rick DeFore. Um, you know, he will forever be known for PLCs. But to me, as brilliant as the PLC work is, what I think is often overlooked about Rick DeFore and the transition or transformation, if you will, of Adlai Stevenson High School, where it all began for him, it wasn't just about PLCs. His ability to craft 
and gain support for a vision is what truly led to the success of PLCs. And just like like that, it's essential for, for our leaders to be able to do the same thing, whether it's a PBL initiative, PLCs, mm-hmm. I mean, whatever. Fill in the blank, whatever it is that, that you feel is going to be that, that method by which you increase student outcomes. If, if you can't create a great vision, if you can't, I guess, sell that vision and live that vision and get others to live the vision – um, that again, I think that's a big thing that's overlooked with with Rick DeFore's uh, work in PLCs. He didn't just say, "Hey, everybody, get in a room, start looking at data, <laughs> let, let's work on this." Right? I mean, he had a true vision for that school. I mean, it was it was the housing, you know, the development of the different houses at the school. The PLCs were ultimately a huge piece of it. But man, he was all about vision. At least at least the way I see it for for him. Yeah, I mean, you have to look at the larger picture, and I do think that lots of school leaders who have matriculated, usually through the teaching profession, don't necessarily have that understanding because why would they? They're not, they're not trained as, as school leaders, they're trained as teachers. And so understanding the bigger picture and, you know, we talk about project-based learning as being a, a real tool to democratize and get those voices in. So what a school leader, I think, really needs to be able to do to be effective, in at least in my humble opinion, is to think about how do you ask the right questions, right? And one thing that leaders can be guilty of, and I, I remember being a teacher and sort of chuckling about this, leaders coming in and saying, the answers are in this room. And, you know, ostensibly they're asking teachers to talk and come up with solutions to problems of the schools. What they usually mean is the answer's in this room and I'm going to let you talk until you say what I want to hear. And then I'm going to say, you've, you've nailed it. Right. And, you know, teachers are smart. They see through that and you do it a couple of times. You might get away with it once or twice, but you're going to start to, they're going to start to see through it. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that you as a leader say, well, let's open it up and flatten this out. And everybody has the same sort of authority that that a school leader. You, I, I do believe the school leader should be leading just like a teacher should be leading their learners. Right. But you if you can frame things in terms of what are the questions, what are the real important questions we need to be asking and pursuing that will frame the discussion in a way that will help you get where you need to be, but you can and should, and there's real value to, to what teachers and you know, other stakeholders might say in response to the right questions. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's go a little bit deeper into project-based learning. Um, when, when, you, when you first set foot on a campus, uh, you might hear a variety of questions, or you might hear a variety of pushback from mm-hmm. a variety of teachers. So um, maybe it'll be rapid fire. Maybe it'll just turn into a discussion. I really don't know where this is going to go, but I'm going to throw a couple of those things at you. And let's, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, how, how you respond to, I'll start with this one because I know this one was asked in my district with you. Um, well, you know, I already kind of do projects in my classroom, so I'm, I'm already doing PBL. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we hear that um, uh, a fair amount. And sometimes I joke, if I had a nickel for every time I, I heard that, I'd be on a private island. Uh, usually yeah. what they're meaning 
is that it, there's a blog piece that that I wrote several years ago now, I think, that we reference in the workshop and has uh, has been resonant with teachers as a sort of aha. And it's called Flipping Bloom's Taxonomy for Deeper Learning or something like that. And the, the image has the typical triangle, you know, pyramid of Bloom's Taxonomy. You can argue about whether you like Bloom's taxonomy or not, and whether it's a you know a pyramid or whatever, I, I I'm I'm here for those kinds of arguments. But most people know Bloom's taxonomy, and the framework of the pyramid is helpful in terms of of thinking about where you start and where you end. And so when we I, I sometimes think about education or talk about it as a spectrum, right? So on one end, you might have very traditional, sort of the, the most extreme version of it is drill and kill, you know, lecture, assess, lecture, assess, lecture, assess. On the other end, you might have what might be called discovery learning or, you know, kids just sort of doing all this self-directed learning and adults being more supervisory. Most schools are in the middle. And if you, the, the people who say they're doing project-based learning are often or have been doing it for years that you're you're talking about. Usually what they're talking about is they're starting at, they say, well, kids have to know things before we can do anything with them. And there's some truth to that. So they start with what they might call front loading with the understand and remember pieces of Bloom's taxonomy, right? The bottom, if you're using that triangle, that pyramid, and they teach all that stuff. And then they say, all right, now that I've, I've taught that and they ostensibly have learned it, now I'm going to ask them to create something or do, do the project, right? And so what we challenge them to do, and I actually just put out a blog piece that references this a little bit too that, that might help, it, help folks understand it. It's like the five phases of PBL, certainly a simplified version, and it's more complex than that. But there is the first phase, which is teachers planning, right? Students aren't active in the project yet. You might solicit their interests and their likes and that kind of thing, but they're not actively engaged in the project. That teacher planning piece starts at the understand and remember, like what knowledge and concepts do I want them to think about and learn about? And then you design your driving question and your project and, and what's the cognitive path we want them to travel, right? Then the phase two is where students would enter and they're starting at the top of Bloom's taxonomy. We're asking them to create, right? And a driving question is how can we design, develop, create, whatever that, that uh, synonym is for create, but we're asking them to create and then we're giving them the opportunity and modeling it and facilitating it. And this I think is a real value of project-based learning, at least the way that we talk about it insofar as it gives them the opportunity to think about what do we need to know and learn in order to do this well, to answer this driving question, right? And so those things should be consistent with, and there might be other things as well, but at least the core of it is those things that in phase one, the teacher identified as understand and remember knowledge and concepts, right? And so then phase two is students entering that, they're identifying those things, and it's not quite as simple as that, but just for sake of brevity, that I think is 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 helpful, right? So phase three, we get into the meat of the project, and they are going 
through, they're learning through the project. They're, they're in the middle pieces of Bloom's taxonomy. They're analyzing with that knowledge and, and information that understand, remember, they're evaluating, they're doing the critical thinking all in service of creating this. Phase four, we would, you know, do the presentation where there are summative assessments and presentations and then sort of phase five as a debrief, right? So they, the step that we want them to do is to not front load and go up, but start your planning at the bottom, but start the students at the top. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the bigger, big, big difference. Which, which already wiped number two off of the, off of the plate. So you answered two, <laughs> you answered two questions all at once, which is great. You know, uh, the second one was going to be, well, isn't this more work? Well, it is on the front load side, but it might be, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah and you get better at it. Um, yeah. You get better at the mm-hmm. process and you get better at the planning. And if you do that front, front end planning, then you're managing the processes you're going through, but it can be more work. It, May not be, but not necessarily. Yeah. What about when teachers ask you, you know, is this the only way I should be teaching? Should I just go from project to project to project mm-hmm. in my classroom? Um, ostensibly, yes, because I love project-based learning. But no, in a, in a real <laughs> world, that doesn't work for a number of reasons or usually doesn't work because you've got logistics and, you know, presentations and snow days and all of those kinds of things, right? Another blog piece that I'd written is what we talk about, or I talk about is the enduring residue of a project-based learning workshop and work, right? And the enduring residue is, and, and, and really what we want teachers to get good at first, and we advocate for starting with small projects and growing from there, is that what we call pull teaching dynamic, right? So that inquiry process where you're facilitating and you're you're sort of using your inquiry skills to draw really good thinking and hopefully really good questions out of students. And so you may not you may not be doing a project, but you can still and I, in my estimation should be doing lots of that, right? So that is just sort of this sort of mindset where you're constantly trying to get what's in kids' heads out so that you can, you know, build on it, reinforce it or correct it instead of just getting what's in your teachers' heads out so that the, the kids can, and both of those are tr- are important. And again, I, I, or not again, but I do want to make sure, and I've, I've been really diving into this, and this may be another question that, that you were going to raise, but people will say, well, am I not supposed to teach, right? Direct teaching and explicit instruction has a very uh, useful and important home in the project-based learning process. There are things that are important to have direct and explicit instruction with and use direct and explicit instruction. But there are also times, I was just talking, I had a podcast that I, that I published with um, uh, Daniel Willingham and, you know, he, he and I were talking about that, like direct instruction is important for a part, but there's also inquiry exercises and there's also collaborative learning activities and there's depends on what you're trying to get. And all of those things should and do have a really wonderful home inside the project based learning process. 
And that actually was going to be my next question. When do I teach? <laughs> you know, we're teachers, right? I mean, that's I'm supposed right, to right. stand and deliver, right? And uh, right. so, so, so I'll spin it into this this one. This will be my last one on on this uh, on this train of thought. But um, but I teach kindergarten, but I teach fifth grade, but I teach mm -hmm. physical education. Fill in the blank. This doesn't fit what I teach. Right. I just had a conversation with somebody who was saying, asking this question yesterday, and she was saying, P people say, tell me, you know, project-based learning is good and great for, you know, upper and middle school or whatever, but not for young ones. And I said, well, the, it's, it's different in sophistication. Uh, what I think, and this might distinguish our project-based learning vision from some others, and, and I do think there are some, some providers who think differently about project-based learning and think about, oh, it helps students collaborate and it, it's engaging. And I would say, well, is it cognitively engaging or is it behaviorally engaging? Because there's a difference there. Uh, there's some, some other byproducts downstream of project-based learning, but when we talk about project-based learning and inquiry, we talk about it in the frame of how do we prepare students for the modern world? Certainly they need to know a lot of things, right? It's important to know some things, right? And at the foundational levels, reading and writing and, and arithmetic, those are really important, right? Does everybody need to know how to do calculus? I would say, and most people would say no, right? But one thing that I think is really important for success in life is, are you able to identify the important questions in doing something and doing it well, right? When you go to buy a house or pick a college or you, you name the life challenge, you can go into, I've written another blog piece about this, the 2008 housing crisis, right? How many people walked in and didn't ask the right questions and we're told the answers because mortgage brokers and real estate agents will say, yep, you can afford this house. And, you know, all of those things here, just sign here and you can, you know, whatever. As opposed to saying, you know, what happens if I lose my job? What happens if my adjustable rate mortgage goes up? What happens? You know, you name the questions, right? right. To think about that and how do I do those things well? That's a skill you develop through practice. Now, the inquiry process can look different in different disciplines, but as a general rule, in my opinion, what I see is that mindset and the ability to think in terms of questions is really, really vital. So when I say project-based learning is happening in young with young kids, that is the, the, the focus, right? So we say, well, what do we, you know, what do we need to know in order to answer this question? And there's your roadmap for how you're going to teach and what you're going to teach, but that the students are practicing in, practicing that and developing that skill with the facilitation of a, of a teacher and modeling of a teacher. Because you, know, you look at a bunch of kindergartners, kindergartners and you say, what do you need to know in order to do this? Well, they look at you like you're an alien. Well, <laughs> so you have to model it, right? Yeah. Uh, I have two daughters, 14 and 16, and there's sometimes I will show there's a whiteboard that I that I took a picture of my daughters a few years ago, especially my youngest was all into slime. Right. I want to make slime, have slime, whatever. And one of the things she asked me at one point, she said, I want to start a slime shop. Well, dad being dad said, all right, what do we need to know? And she and I, and mostly she, honestly, uh, came up with a, a list of, you know, 
15 questions of what do we need to know and think about? Like, uh, you know, what's our market? Who are we marketing to? How much would materials cost? And, and I want my daughters to be able to, to have that ability. And I want all of our students to have that ability in addition to knowing how to read and how to add and, you know, what our, how our government works and all of those kinds of things. So I do think it's really important. It just looks really sophisticated or different, differently sophisticated at lower levels. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest with you. One of the, uh, one of the best projects and I, I won't go into it because it'll, it'll take a while to explain, but um, our, our third grade um, grade level team, ended up doing a really wonderful project um, right uh, right there in West Grand when I was there. Um, you know, they were really excited about that. And honestly, I think, you know, it was exciting to watch the students, uh, to see them, you know, not only sharing their learning, but all the way through the mm-hmm. process. So, yeah, it absolutely could be done. So uh, let's do this, Drew. Let's transition to the final question that I ask everybody here on the show. Um, this is the Leaning Into Leadership podcast. So, Drew, right now, what are you doing to lean into leadership? Yeah, well, again, I I do the do our podcast or host our podcast, and and I have really been trying to dive into the ways in which, among other things and topics, but the ways in which the because when we talk about project based learning and inquiry, there is I think a really valid criticism of project based learning and inquiry done poorly. And so what does that look like, right? So the direct and explicit instruction people will, the science of learning people, and I've had them on the podcast, several of them, and I've had some really good conversations about that. And hopefully that's helpful for educators to say, all right, so what they will say is that, you know, PBL is discovery learning. And I say, well, that's a straw man, just like when people say direct and explicit instruction is the same as, you know, lecture and drill and kill. Right. There are extreme examples and poor examples, but how do we do it well and how do we blend those things? Right. So I've been having conversations in, on our podcast in a in an effort to explore that and do it publicly so that people can hear it um, and think more about it. And I think that's an important conversation to be had, because, again, I do think just just like I am, I am sometimes have some frustration with the science of learning people who say direct and explicit instruction is the only way, the best way, it's the most efficient way. You know, I think they're only looking at a piece of the puzzle. I also think it's important to look at PBL and the practitioners of inquiry to say, all right, how, what are we not getting right? Because I think that's an important piece of the puzzle as well. We can't just say, oh, the kids are they're loving this, right? And social media has all kinds of examples of really great inquiry and PBL activities. And I look at it and go, hmm, what are they learning? And and how is this structured and scaffolded? And what about the group and individual accountability? And how are you building those skills and those kinds of things? So that's a piece. And I've also in our in our podcast and some other conversations I alluded to earlier about some school leaders thinking about I mean, I've had school leaders reach out to me and connect, and I've talked with several of them about how can we help our schools and school leaders navigate these culture war kinds of things. Um, We, in my estimation, have a duty to really what I would call lean into liberal science, which is, you know, pluralistic and, and giving the opportunity to question 
ideas and present ideas, whether it's the 1619 project or, um, you know, trans issues or whatever the case is, right? We have to have those conversations and we have to do those things in ways that allow for a number of voices to be heard, even if you disagree with them. And I hear from school leaders that they're, they're really frustrated and struggling with some of those things. So we try, I try to model some of that and have those conversations on our podcast, but I'm also uh, looking at ways we can sort of lean into those leadership as, as uh, opportunities and, and, uh, and needs as an organization. So those may, uh, may, may develop and, and we'll see how that happens. But uh, that's, that's something that is sort of continually on our burners. I think that's outstanding. It's, it's important to not just simply stand on one particular stance and say, this is the best thing, or this is the only thing. Mm-hmm. And, and to, right. this to really be self-reflective. Yeah. And, and say, you know, hey, what aren't we getting right? Um, I really appreciate that, that you share that. So for my listeners who want to reach out, have a conversation with you, talk to you about the work at Teach Thought, how do they get in touch with Drew Perkins? Yeah, you can just go to our website, which is wegrowteachers.com. Teachthought.com is our main website that has all of our blogs and that kind of thing. And our blog, some of our blog pieces and the podcast are on uh, wegrowteachers.com, which is the professional development site. So again, wegrowteachers.com. They can hear me on the Teach Thought podcast. Uh, they can email me straight away at drew at teachthought.com. I'm on Twitter sometimes, uh, for better or for worse, at D Perkins Ed. <laughs> and I think I'm on LinkedIn, but I'm not very active on LinkedIn. Yeah, excellent. So I'm going to link um, your your website. I'll link your, well, actually both websites. I'll link the podcast. I'll link the uh, blog in there. And then you talk specifically about three or four specific blogs. And I'll put those also in the show notes. So, um, you know, if you heard something from Drew today that you're like, man, I want to hear a little bit more about that, or I'd really like to read that post, folks, just head on down into the show notes. That's where you're going to find those. Uh, Drew Perkins, man, it was really great to catch up with you again and to have this conversation. Thanks for joining me here on Leaning Into Leadership. All right. Thanks, Darren. Once again, big thank you to Drew Perkins for coming on the show and for sharing just all of that amazing knowledge. Folks, make sure you do uh, do yourself a favor and check out everything at teachthought.com. The work that they're doing in the project-based learning and inquiry space is absolutely phenomenal. So make sure that you are checking them out. And now it's time for a pep talk. Today, I want to go right at something that Drew and I talked about during the middle portion of this episode, and that's creating a compelling vision. This, to me, is what really separates good leaders from great leaders. The really good leaders, they, they can see the picture. They can see how it comes together, but they don't create that compelling vision that doesn't just drive them. It drives everybody. I mean, we're talking everybody can see what that vision is. What is it going to look like in a year or two years or three years? What's it going to look like? What's it going to smell like? What's it going to feel like when I'm in a classroom? When I see a kid cross the stage with that diploma, when I see an elementary student having success, creating that compelling vision is what great leadership is all about. I worked with a district and a specific superintendent for a number of years. She'll know I'm talking about her when I say this, but she often referred to that compelling vision as a casserole. And there's so many different ingredients that go into creating that casserole. And some people can see the ingredients, 
but they can't necessarily picture that casserole. To be a great leader means being able to help others see the finished product, the casserole, see that compelling vision, and not only see it, but take some ownership in it. Feel that vision. Know that the work you do is going to contribute to that vision. When the vision is not just the vision of the leader, but the vision of everybody in the organization, that's the compelling vision. That's the work of a great leader. When you find yourself as a leader getting stuck in the weeds and getting lost in the weeds, don't forget, you got to get up on that balcony. You got to check in on that compelling vision. Because if you're not leading towards that, man, you're back in firefighter mode. You got to make sure you're really focusing on building and getting that complete ownership of that compelling vision. Thank you so much for joining me this week on Leaning Into Leadership. Have a road to awesome day. Thank you for listening to the Leaning Into Leadership podcast brought to you by Road to Awesome. Don't forget, click subscribe, give a review, and share this with somebody who might also enjoy leaning into leadership.